In this episode, I am once again joined by Dr. Alexander Arguelles, linguist, world-renowned polyglot, and scholar of comparative religion. Dr. Arguelles continues the biographical thread taken up in the first episode, recalling after his years of intense language study in Korea, accepting a professorship in Lebanon to immerse in Arabic, later fleeing the country with his family as war erupted there. Dr. Arguez recalls teaching positions in California, Singapore, Dubai, and the language immersions that those postings facilitated. Dr. Arguez also critiques current trends in the American university system, compares it to the past, proposes alternative structures and reformations, and offers his thoughts on the future of academia. So without further ado, Dr. Alexander Arguez. Professor Alexander Arguez, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me again. Well, I'm so delighted to be talking with you again. And our first episode, Path of the Polyglot, was extremely well received. And in that episode, we covered much of your biography and also a certain, should we say, spiritual dimension of language learning. And indeed, actually, your own personal, should we say, spiritual or religious or aspects of your own personal, spiritual and religious unfolding, should we say, or journey or whichever metaphor is appropriate there. And it was so fascinating. And this time I'd like to pick up where we left off in the biography and also ask you in particular about a whole suite of techniques you've got to do with meditation and language learning or meditative language learning. Um, we'll, we'll talk a bit about that as well as some other related questions. So your biography, we, we left you in Korea. You'd graduated your uh, doctorate at University mm -hmm. of Chicago. You'd spent some time postdoc two years in Germany, uh, where you really began to unlock many of the methods that you would later on become known for. Uh, you began this idea of branch learning. You learned so many Germanic languages that you went to Sweden and realized you basically knew the language already without having studied it, things like that. Very fascinating indeed. And then you went to Korea because learning Germanic and Romance languages was not really enough of a challenge for you at that point. You thought, let's take a hard language, Korean. You went to stay in Korea where you were a professor there and well, to say more about that would perhaps not do it justice, but there you're immersed in many, many hours a day of double digits hours every day of language study, your monastic period, as you called it, and a real laboratory of transformational time. Then you got married and left Korea. So that's where we got up to. And mm -hmm. fascinating story it was. And that's that's the path of the polyglot episode. I recommend everyone check that out. What happened next? Did you okay. rest on your laurels language-wise? No, no. I mean, so basically what happened is I figured um, when, I, when, I, when I married my Korean wife, I felt like I was marrying the Korean language and I didn't need to stay there anymore. I thought that this meant now I could have the opportunity to keep, keep speaking and, and, and learning Korean wherever we were. And that had kind of kept me there because, yes, Korean was a, a very difficult challenge. And uh, I stayed there for, I think, three times three years. Uh, my contract at the university was for three years. And I kind of was tempted to move on and do things. But every time it came up, I thought, I'm not good enough yet. I've been I've committed myself to this and I need to uh, get better uh, at, at Korean. So once I was married, I felt like liberated from that. 
And I thought, well, I can take this language, I can keep using and growing this, and I can go uh, to immerse myself in another very difficult language. And again, if you just going by certain statistics, if you look at the, you know, the sort of categories of most difficult languages as, as, as they're sort of out there um, for native English speakers to learn, you have the uh, East Asian languages on the one hand and Arabic are in that category. And so Arabic is something that I had been studying already uh, and uh, did also find to be quite challenging, fascinating, interesting in its own right. So <clears throat> I resolved to um, go to kind of try, try to try to repeat the experiment of immersing myself in a totally different culture, a totally different to learn the language and then learn the culture through the language. So I resolved to uh, devote myself to Arabic next and uh, looked around for various places. And I got a position at uh, a university in Beirut in Lebanon. Uh, and so uh, my family, my, my nascent family moved there, my wife and my one, my, my born child and my coming up child, coming my second son, who was, who was going to be there. Um, we moved to Lebanon in, in 2004. And so I was at uh, in a university there that was um, trying to, you're involved in some of these things at the academy, uh, was wanting to be like a chartered American style university. And so they wanted to have a great books program. And so I, my official purpose of going there, the thing that they sort of recruited me for and I went for was to build a, a great books reading and discussion program. Um, so that's kind of what uh, what I went there to do. But again, my my personal focus was to try to um, immerse myself in Arabic as much as I could. Uh, and so I had a second experience of going to a foreign culture and trying to immerse myself in the language and, and do it and, um, and, and really learn and grow a lot through it. And uh, I did uh, I did that well there, I feel, um, because, uh, I mean, it was a different experience because again, being being married and having a family is different from being, you know, the, the, whatever you want to call it, a monk or just, you know, a bachelor, you know, able to focus on it. Um, the, the position that I, <clears throat> I walked into at the university was, um, I mean, I'd, ha I'd had titles other than just professor at the University in Korea, um, but I wasn't really expected to be on all these committees and you know faculty meetings and stuff. And, and there I was, and they sort of like wanted to plug me in and make me head of the department and do this kind of thing. So it was a lot more um, job job oriented, uh, you know, in in, in the job. Uh, and uh, so it was a, it was a different. I wasn't able to immerse myself in a sense the way I. I, I could in in Korea in a way, but still it was all around me, both Arabic and and French. It's really a francophone country, um, and so that was a nice aspect of it too. Um, but uh, I had a I got a private teacher, private tutor, and I met with her like twice a week and did conversational lessons. And she was a uh, a broadcaster. I mean, I I sought her out with people's help. Uh, that you know, there's Arabic is what's called a diglossic situation. You have a local colloquial Arabic, which is mostly what you hear spoken on the street, and then you have modern standard Arabic, which is what you hear on all broadcasts. And it's the only written language, and and that's the one that I was interested in. And so. Um, as a broadcast journalist, I mean, she could speak this perfectly fluently, so uh, I was able to take private lessons with her. But more than anything else, I just um, went and I, I bought tons of books. Uh, I went and, and you know just you know got as many books as I could and, and read as much as I could, and kind of went and did a different thing. When I moved to Korea, I didn't know any Korean, or I was just starting out. When I moved to Lebanon, I knew quite a bit of Arabic, and so I was able to go into this sort of advanced situation and really push myself further. At and get people to speak it as much as I could. And again, university professors are happy to, to speak it with you and there are people who can, um, and, but there are a lot of people who think that if you know 
this modern standard Arabic, you can't peak, speak with the people on the street. That's that's just false. I mean, my landlady was a, a Syrian peasant lady, and she wasn't highly educated, and she didn't know anything except her local dialect, and I didn't know anything except monosan, but that was our common frame of communication, and we didn't really have any trouble uh, communicating. Uh, you know, if people who, who know both or who know other languages, they might think it's kind of weird speaking to you, but, you know, I was able to find, you know, numbers of people that were, were happy uh, and eager to speak it with me, so I was uh, able to go and immerse myself in, in a second really difficult language in this way, and again, mostly um, plug myself into reading and being with my teacher. And so you already mentioned um, a technique, I don't know if I would call it linguistic meditation at this time, but I realized that I'd gotten very good at at least the discipline of telling my mind that it's time to think in this other language, be in this other language, resonate with the sounds that you have of this other language, not to panic, and start translating if you can't say or think something, but just keep thinking and let your mind in a very meditative sense, be a blank. Just say, just just have the concept without articulating it, have the words. I don't know the word for this in Arabic. I don't need to have the word for it. I can visualize it and see it and keep my Arabic thoughts going. So um, I just remember very consciously um, telling myself, I'm going to, um, well, Ardashir was a little boy at that time. I carried him to the nursery school on my shoulders. You know, we spoke French all the time there because it was French-speaking nursery school. But then I'd drop him off and I'd walk back to the university and I would say, okay, now this walk back to the university is Arabic thinking time. And so I would just put my mind into Arabic thinking in Arabic and being in Arabic. So um, it really was a, 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 a very nice uh, Arabic immersion experience. And it was a very lovely experience my both my wife and i agree having now been through many other countries for whatever reason we have the richest most most memories of lebanon the most memories of of seeing this just a fascinating country it's a tiny little postage stamp of a country where you can literally be on the coast and then drive up into the mountains and it can be summer on the in the coast and it can be snowing in the mountains and tons and tons of beautiful beautiful ancient roman ruins and and all sorts of things and truly the people there are um Lots of people around the world want to think of themselves as being hospitable. The Lebanese just blow everybody else out of the water. I just, I, I've never been in as many homes. You know, people you know, take your cat to the vet and somebody next to you starts talking to you and they say, you have to come to our place for dinner. And they mean it. And they, they, they take you over and they make you come over to their house for dinner. So um, we were sadly only there for about two years because uh, the, the war between uh, when Israel invaded uh, Getting it at, at, at between it wasn't between Israel and Lebanon, between Israel and Hezbollah, um, just real um, bombs dropping around our home and and stuff like this, and so it was uh, quite a, quite a hairy, scary situation. Uh, all of a sudden, in July of two thousand and six, and so um, kind of truly did just uh, pack up our stuff as 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 refugees and literally um, have to flee the country by taxi going through Syria into Jordan to get an airplane out of the Middle East. So um, that was uh, a sad twist and an ending to it, but um, I was able to, um, you know, the people at the university were very nice about, you know, packing up all, all my books and my language library and shipping it to me later on. I didn't lose anything uh, in terms of the, the the books. My wife, uh, when she got all of her home things, she said, this is missing and that's missing and this missing. And I said, I'm not missing any books. And she said, who would want to steal any language books? But there we have it. Well, can you say something about that, that uh, decision to leave? I suppose it was made 
on the spur of the moment, was it? I mean, what can you tell that story in a little bit more detail? And how did that affect you and your family afterwards? I, I think you went to California uh, right after that, right? Right, right. Um, yeah, I mean, we weren't planning on leaving at all. I was planning on staying there for, you know, indefinitely. Um, but this uh, situation it broke out. And uh, I don't know. I mean, you know, when you're, if I'd been Lebanese or if I were, you know, younger and wanted to stick it out or something, but when you have a toddler or two and, and a family, you don't want to stick around in a war zone. So um, why'd you get out of there? Uh, and it was uh, highly counseled both by the, uh, the American embassy and the uh, the Korean embassy, all foreign embassies were telling their you know nationals to to leave uh, as soon as possible and organizing uh, organizing uh, what do we call ex no uh, uh, you know sending like sending boats or you know or or, or or buses to you know pull people out and get people out and so um, we were kind of uh, stuck between that the Americans would ship a boat, but my wife didn't have a green card yet. And so we didn't know if we could get on that. The Koreans said I could go and the Koreans were sending a bus out to Turkey. They said I could go with them, but they didn't know what would happen like if we got to a roadblock in, in Turkey. So yes, uh, some very nice Lebanese friends at the university and they arranged for us to do this sort of, like I said, a private taxi thing going through Syria uh, into uh, into Jordan. So um, yeah, it was, it was, um, it was, I don't know, it was a very sad, you know, terrible thing to, to see happening. It's just surreal images, you know, I guess the Lebanese said they had been through these long civil wars and other invasions and were kind of used to it. And so one of my last memories is just before the taxi left the, the like the border to go into Syria was this wedding going on by the side of the road and all these people dancing and singing, you know, and stuff like that. And a few days before we, we left, we were put up in this luxury hotel. So I had this Olympus style swimming pool to swim in, but I could hear the machine guns firing in the background. And yeah, I mean, you just heard, yeah, we, we did when we left the city the first time because the bombs were dropped. We lived fairly near the airport. The Israelis bombed the, the, the airport and stuff. And so we thought we better get out of the city. So we went out to the um, so countryside. We knew some people in the countryside, but then the next strategy was to bomb the bridges leading into other things. So we actually moved closer to the bombing. So then we had to go go out and through the north. So um, yeah, I don't. Yeah, it was it was you know again we had to leave on the spur. The saddest thing, one of the saddest things for me is I had two before Merlin. I had two cats from Korea and we couldn't take those out, so I had to leave them with a family friend on a farm there. Um, you know, so that was a, a, a terrible loss. But you know, once we when we got to when we got to Jordan, it was like, well, where could we go? I mean, we could go to Korea or we could go to America. And we just kind of looked for the the best flight to get, you know, my parents are in California. So uh, we did literally end up um, there as, uh, as, as, as refugees, basically. Uh, so I guess the same traumatic experience that any, any refugee would have. I mean, I never felt any post-traumatic stress uh, disorder. I don't think my wife did. My sons were too little, but it was, yeah, it was incredibly, incredibly disruptive. But uh, we, uh, again, we felt a guiding hand over us. We had a safe place to go and landed there and had no real difficulties adjusting or being there either. So, and you were in San Francisco for about three years before moving on to Singapore. Is that right? That's right. Um, my family, my parents, my father is a was a university librarian for um, Romance languages at UC Berkeley. Um, so that's where I that's why we moved there when I was a teenager. Was because of my brother's illness and they had better rehabilitation there and. Uh, so I went to high school, but I'd never really lived in California until that point. After high school, I'd have gone back to visit them. 
And uh, because I moved there under unhappy circumstances as a teenager and you know, just didn't really like when I was a teenager, I remember um, it was at one point at this point, uh, I was running in the hills. It was a beautiful morning and beautiful sunlight. And I realized, you know, this is actually a beautiful place here. I never really, <laughs> never really uh, given, given any thought. But yeah, so my parents live in, in Berkeley. And so we, you know, we, we went there. Their house is not large enough for us all like, to be in permanently, but they had a, uh, had a very good friend who has a very large house. And, you know, so we were able to stay with her until we could get an apartment of our own. And I also was, you know, I was like, okay, well, what am I going to do? And there was this um, little college in San Francisco called New College of California that had been founded in the uh, 1970s as this sort of, you know, alternative counterculture spin off type place, you know. And I don't want to, I hope it was more my credentials and experience and stuff, but it was also connections, you know, through my father and people who knew there, you know, it's just like I landed there and it's like, you know, this guy needs a job and we could use a guy like him. So, I mean, I had a job within a week. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't a, a you know, a hard, a hard, you know, like hard scale existence that we had, you know, but we had to find an apartment and, and get our things there. So yeah, new college was, uh, I mean, that was that new college was also, um, a place where if I, if if it if it had survived, um, that would have been uh, I think it would I don't know if I would have liked it so much there the entire time of being there, but certainly in terms of developing sort of my ideas of an academy or you know I don't know if they had the infrastructure they, they had the openness to it they suggested that I take the 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 great books courses that I developed in Lebanon and I told them I do them more like recast it for them so it was you know from instead of great books of the east it was like east asian consciousness so I was able to teach great books there I was able to teach my methodology I was able to teach uh, you know uh, some linguistic methodology take some kids out into the park and have them do shadowing walking in the park I mean they were very very open to that I don't know if there were enough students there who were really that interested in it. I don't know if it could have, you know, kept going, but in terms of um, developing and being able to do all the kind of classes that I wanted, it was, um, it was a great place, but I, I did start to get a little bit of a complex that maybe I was a, 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 a finger of bad luck because I, I went to Lebanon and, and then I made Lebanon get invaded and then went to California or, you know, and then, you know, I made the financial crisis of like 2008 happen or something. So, but anyway, it happened and this, this place, New College had been on uh, shaky legs already and it just kind of collapsed with the, uh, with the financial uh, instability there. So um, it didn't last. I don't know if I, I don't, like I said, I don't know if I would have wanted to stay there, but that, that wasn't an option, which is why I started looking around again. Uh, and I hadn't particularly wanted to be in, uh, in the States. Um, it was more, again, the, the refugee situation going back to where my parents were. Uh, and uh, seriously, in, in 2008, um, there were just no, no, no jobs to, to be had. There was nothing that, you know, that could have gone there. So looking around, that's how I found the, the place in Singapore and how we ended up there. But you're probably going to want me to say more about California before I move on. So I can see you, you've got that question mark you get on your forehead when you have questions. So ask away. Yes. Actually, uh, it's not so much about California. It's about, you know, you, you talk about your academy, which now you are actualizing. And mm -hmm. I know you've, you've recently, you're doing a summer, a, a special limited run summer course three months and you're recruiting people for that meeting two three times a week with you to study four languages at once maybe you could say something about that but 
Also, when you look at education today, let's say in the States, for example, or anywhere else in general, perhaps, and we're talking from beginning school all the way up, if you could wave a magic wand, how would you reform it? What would you take of your, if your academy could become the model, in a sense, and you had, you had command of education from you know, five, five years old onwards, or maybe even younger, what, how would you reform it? I recognize that's a, a large question, but I wonder what would your vision look like if it was unfettered by everybody else in the world? <laughs> well, that's a huge question with many things there to, to say. Uh, let, me, let me even make it huge by backtracking for a moment. I hope I can make a segue in. Uh, I forgot to mention something else in Lebanon. It just happened to be while I was in Lebanon, but it kind of leads to the academy. It leads to everything else. I mean, when I was in Korea, I was truly um, isolated uh, from you know anything outside my immediate surroundings. Um, and but when I was in Lebanon, uh, I was not because there was I don't know how I stumbled on it, but there was this um, forum called How to Learn Any Language um, that um, I just I think I stumbled upon it like you know within days of its emerging or, or not very, very, very soon into it. Um, and I just started writing, you know, all sorts of, you know, putting my ideas there and people started asking me for more ideas and stuff. I ended up having my own sub forum on it, but um, a lot of the ideas that I had for the academy and for like ideas that I want to have were sort of um, almost teased out of me by in, engaging with people, uh, by, by having a forum where I could say, hey, you know what I think, and this would be an ideal systematic way of training in languages, and this would be a good sequence for learning languages, and uh, this kind of thing, and then people would ask me questions, so that that's really important. So, so I think that everything in terms of starting my academy now, um, the ground has been laid for it for a good 20 years. I mean, it was Lebanon is 2000. 2004, so going on 19 years, I've been, you know, really sort of putting out ideas for it and, and saying things like this as well. Um, so uh, your question, um, well, another, well, I guess this is getting a little, little bit later because the kids are still very small if we're going geographic historically, but I, I did homeschool my sons once later on, and I we used a particular curriculum that really encouraged them to to teach themselves, and I was there sort of as their supporter. So um, I can see young kids, or at least young kids like my own sons, taking charge of their education from a from an early time, um, and I can sort of have a vision of of education as being much more. Um, by provision of opportunities and uh, you know and, and circumstances and environment for people to take advantage of it than sort of specific classes or specific courses but um, i don't know about that magic wand of yours waving a wand wanting to control everything from from age five on up um but uh yes yeah, certainly in terms of language education language um uh, and languages being not just, you know, the, the grammar and stuff, but language being the literature and the culture and the thought process that goes behind it. Um, that's something I do think that would be very nice if it could be very different for, for the kind of people that, you know, are, have been out there in the forum or are now coming to the academy and are out there for, for a large portion of people that I think are the ones who can profit from and enjoy language in the largest sense, you know, language and culture and literature in the largest sense, people like that, uh, I think are sadly almost excluded from the 
rapid, the scholastic institutionalization of languages and language teaching uh, as it is these days in terms of uh, just putting it into very specific programs. And there's so much um, politically, political different types of ideology that are now involved in various kinds of analysis or just discourse or anything. It's just very hard to like say, I want to actually just immerse myself in the learning. I want to immerse myself in the languages and the literature and, and focus on that as such rather than all these, um, yeah, these, these sort of academically uh, sort of mandatory ways of, of speaking about things. So that's what I'm, I'm really excited about and, and, and enjoying uh, in, the, uh, in the academy uh, as it's manifesting with students like you um, who are just there as, um, you know, people who want to learn, lifelong learners. You know, there's a real opportunity. That, that's a buzzword, lifelong learning that's been co-opted to, you know, to, to not mean what it should mean, but, you know, the idea that, yes, that uh, learning in that sense, learning, you know, in a, in a deep sense is something that does take you, you know, an entire continuous ongoing lifetime of experience and, and opportunities to do. Uh, and so just to have people um, that are there who are happy and eager to say, well, yes, as you just mentioned, I mean, we have got like literature circles where German literature, we're reading a book, you know, and the goal is to read German, discuss German. And then when we finish this book, we'll read another book, you know, where it's not like finish this one semester, get a grade, move on, get this diploma and, and do this. So um, uh, very nice aspect of, of the academy, having people that are willing to come and, and say, this is my opportunity to speak and use and, and business like so I just have this vision in my head now that they've kind of did some some number crunching somewhere. But if I just think about all the people um, in all the countries who have graduated from all the universities who um, had some experience with, you know, a language like German or Latin or French or something. And so many people I met at, at cocktail parties back in the day would say things when they find out on the language. Oh, yes, I when I was in college, I, I was good at German. Maybe I was an economics major or history major, but I enjoyed German. I took German literature. I got to spend a semester in German, but now I never get to use it and I'm forgetting it. I would, that's my sort of target dream, sort of all gather all those people and say, well, come, you know, this is a place where you can keep using it and speaking it and growing in it. So uh, have those. But yes, there's also the aspect of the, the pedagogical people, you know, really wanting to teach themselves languages and get good at teaching themselves languages and learn the skills of teaching themselves languages. Um, and so um, you mentioned we've got <clears throat> sexy Shenghao's idea uh, to put together this, this course based around I, I did a video, it's out there on YouTube, uh, 14 years ago, time's flying, on the uh, Berlitz, uh, Berlitz sequence of courses that was from the 1950s or 60s, and just sort of reviewing those. And the one, wonderful, beautiful thing about these is apart from being really, really, really well structured and built, that was the golden age of, of self-teaching courses, and these are the, the best of the best. I mean, they're just full of really good sound effects and voices and just like, you know, just really intuitive way of, of building up the knowledge of, of a language. But they're almost, um, they, with the needed cultural nuances, um, it's the same lesson in, in, they've got them in French, German, Spanish, and Italian. Um, and it's this, it's a story. It's a story of an American, young American businessman who um, is, I think his father's from that nationality, so he's grown up pretty good in it, but he's never really been to that country before. So he goes there on a business trip. While he's there, he meets an acquaintance who's an older man that he met his thing. That guy invites him to his house. He falls in love with the guy's daughter. 
the daughter has an evil cousin who's like a, a playboy is mean, disinherited by a rich aunt. He plays some sort of thing. This is before cell phones. So when this guy is in a car accident and he's in the hospital, the, 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 the slimy cousin takes the letter that he sent and there's this sort of, and it's kind of soap opera, but it's, it's an interesting enough story. There's an actual story that you can go along. But the thing is that you can tell that same story in all these four different languages. And so the point that I made, I think, 14 years ago is that this would be a great opportunity to learn not to have that kind of confusion that you said, learn not to have that kind of thing, to focus on telling the story and seeing different ways of telling the same story. And I do have uh, techniques that I have honed. And I've talked to you about them in various things. I just mentioned like walking down the streets in Lebanon, thinking in Arabic, ways of helping people to say, you know, I'm going to organize my mind. I want to have, you know, a specific drawer or category for this language and i'm going to go into this language knowing i'm doing this i'm going to put other things in other drawers and close them off and put them away so that uh, there there's really no grounds for confusion and in fact you can draw upon the to illuminate the, each other and, and tell different kind of things so yes this this uh this course again that was, uh, was shinghao's idea to have it be just three months for people who are not able you know, to, to commit to that sort of open-ended, long-term thing. We're thinking maybe, I don't know, graduate students, college students, people on summer vacation that might have to say, okay, I have a concentrated three-month period. Uh, I think that if we work hard enough and we did put out uh, a survey and, and find out that it's mostly people who are seriously interested in working hard that are responding, um, that uh, what we can do is I can meet with them at the beginning of the week and I will give them guidance. I'll say, this is what we're going to do. This is specifically what I want you to do this week. This is how I want you to do it. This is why we're doing it this way. I'll sort of give like a lecture and a demonstration and tell them exactly what to do. Um, I'll be available to meet with them during office hours during the week. If they have any, you know, pressing issues, want to talk to me one-on-one. -on -one. And then at the end of the week, um, I'll say, okay, let's, let's go over um, any specific questions. And it is focusing on speaking French, Spanish, German, Italian. So we'll talk some French, Spanish, German, and Italian. We'll look at various things. And so it'll be sort of a, a, a laboratory uh, sort of workshop uh, at the end. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited about having people who, you know, who said that, you know, they really want to learn how to teach themselves languages. That's, that's the thing I've always wanted to do is to teach people how to teach themselves languages. As a language teacher, you're always in the classroom, you're teaching the language, and a good language teacher inevitably does teach his students how to learn. But I'd like to make that specific conscious, you know, first and, first and foremost. These are the skills that you learn. These are the habits that you need. This is, what, this is how you have to structure your life. This is how you have to live. If you're going to try to study this much, this is how you have to live. Okay? This is how you have to think. This is what you need to do. Okay? These are various techniques that you can use. Um, and uh, this is the one that I have found to be most valuable. So if you're going to pay me to teach you, then please pay attention and do it just the way I've shown you. And when you have it right, and I tell you have it right, then feel free to modify it. Then feel free to throw it away. Then feel free to do something else. But you know, try to do you know, things. If, if I've spent my life and experience the hard way figuring out, you know, this, this works better than that, please figure out how to do this before you, you try to do that. So um, I'm aiming to sort of hopefully um, take people and save them a couple of, of years of, of experimentation or frustration or, or hardship. Maybe that's a quixotic quest. I don't know. Maybe everybody has to find his or her own path. But I do think that by uh, specifically and overtly saying that 
you know, this, these are these are good techniques. This is a good thing to try. This is a good way to do it. And more specifically, these are the habits that you need to have. This is how you you need to approach it. Um, that people will be able to do this. So yeah, my hope for this this summer's program is that uh, people will go into this and they will come out. Uh, and even if they've done it, you're never going to master a language in that sense. But they'll have a good solid base in all of those languages. They're old courses. So, I mean, it's, it's, you know, I'm not going to, this, this is not something that's good for anybody. So I want to learn this and then I want to go on a tour in Europe and walk around and speak to people. No, I mean, I'm all about literature and writing. These are old, if you want to learn German so that you can read Hermann Hesse, you know, read Siddhartha and do these kind of things and speak and do this. This is very well tailored to you again, because you can do all four of them in tandem. So people should come out with a, a solid basis for building further knowledge in in these four languages uh, and they should more importantly come out i i taught myself i was guided i had somebody holding my hand at first and pushing you know and overseeing but i taught myself these and now i have the techniques that i know to continue to teach myself to improve in these and or to teach myself other languages and, and do it more successfully in my own yeah wonderful well let's that was a bit of a tangent there i offered you the kingly wand uh-huh. But, but once you did refuse it, <laughs> you, did, you didn't want you didn't want to reform the entire education system with my magic wand. All right, fine. You've rejected that question. So uh, let's go Singapore, Dubai, and then up to I guess now in Minnesota. Let's cover mm-hmm. that. And I, then I'd really like to ask you about some of your techniques. Okay, sure. Um, so yeah, so again, so Singapore is um, I got uh, a, a position. Uh, at a at the longest sounding institutional name of place, uh, I got a position at as a, my my title there. I was a language specialist at the Southeast Asian Ministers of Education Organization Regional Language Center in Singapore. And that was the that was the name of the institution that I worked for, um, and that was um, again the I. I I'd, I'd never thought of going to Singapore uh, before that, uh, and I kind of, I think I mentioned um, Singapore they, is, 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 a, is a quadrilingual country. They've got uh, Chinese, Mandarin, Chinese, and Tamil, and Malay, and, and English, but English is really the uh, official language. Um, Malay is something I dabbled with at the, the tiniest little degree, and then decided that was when, in my phase of saying, I want to learn one language from every language family. Uh, Malay is sort of, I, I looked into that and decided that was too ambitious to do that many things. Tamil is something I'd never gotten to, but uh, kind of was curious to, wanted to know about. Uh, but Chinese, I'd specifically, I think I mentioned, at a certain point in Korea, studied Chinese and Japanese and then decided I need to cut back. And so I'd sort of consciously said, I'm not going to do Chinese. So um, Singapore is a place that I did not move to for linguistic opportunities, like I moved to Korea or to to to, to Lebanon, but more for this this job opportunity, which turned out to be a really fascinating uh, and important job opportunity. Um, what it was is was um, training teacher trainers. So uh, at this organization, because Singapore was the most uh, advanced country in, in Southeast Asia, um, they sort of felt an obligation to help the the, the less advanced countries um, develop their educational infrastructure. And so uh, they had various courses. This is the language center, and so they did offer. Um, 
you know, they, they did offer Malay and, 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 and Chinese and Japanese and some other languages and, and other things. But the main part, it was not so much English as such, but teaching methodology for, for schools. So um, language pedagogy and language, um, language, language theory. And so I had opportunities to do things like uh, there's a one big name in, 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 in reading and vocabulary, I guess it's in Paul Nation. Paul Nation was a professor there too. He was a professor at the University in New Zealand, but he also came to this place and worked there. And so I was able to um, really develop some of my own using his ideas about vocabulary acquisition and using a specific program to measure thing, uh, how, how, how difficult a, a given text might be for you. Um, I was able to do some really interesting research with him on, on, on vocabulary, vocabulary acquisition and things like that. Um, but the, the crux of the matter was that we had, they called them cohorts of, um, of master teachers would come from Vietnam or Burma, or I'm sorry, Myanmar now it's called, or Myanmar or um, China or things. And so these, these batches of teachers would come Vietnam, Thailand, and they would spend two or three months in, uh, in Singapore. And we would train them on like research methodology or, or, you know, or on, or on vocabulary or on, you know, or sort of grammar acquisition or stuff like this as sort of in a theoretical way. So it was an opportunity for me to uh, sort of hone up on my own, you know, linguistic core element of looking at things and to help these people learn that. But then the, the fun part of the job was that they would come to Singapore for two or three months, and then they would go back to their country. And then two or three months later, we would follow them to their country. Uh, and they, as master teachers, would have gone back to their, their home schools, high schools in various provinces, and taught the other teachers in the school. And so we would go to these schools and we were supposed to see that they were implementing what they'd learned and did this. So um, I got to, I was based in Singapore, but I got to travel extensively throughout all of Southeast Asia and in, in, in Indonesia and uh, Vietnam, Thailand, Cambodia, uh, China. So I got to go to spend a lot of time you know, just traveling around um, all these countries and seeing these cultures. But um, even there as a polyglot feeling totally out of my league. I, these were not languages that I'd studied. These were not languages that I'd picked up. These were not languages and cultures that I was you know, saying I want to throw myself into. It was great to, to be there and be exposed to it and, and, and learn things. And um, speaking of, of YouTube, I, I took all my students from there and I sat with them and I you know, did like a series of videos. Okay, tell us about Khmer, tell us about your language, tell us about you know how stuff like this. So I explored a little bit, but I wasn't really going to, um, to, to, to stay immersed in it. So Singapore was really good for, um, the, the experience of, um, yeah, of, 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 of doing language, you know, vocabulary research with whole nation and, and getting, you know, going over my own structure of, of pedagogy and stuff and, uh, traveling to these other countries. But it was also really, uh, in, back to your question, I wasn't refusing the wand. It's just too much of a big, big question to, to answer. This is also a place where I started to think about that because again, this was, it was, we did offer a master's program. It was sort of a graduate institute, but it wasn't a university as such. And this is the first time I'm going to replace, you know, an educational organization that wasn't a university as such. And I saw the type of students that were coming. Um, and, you know, these, 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 older master teachers. So I had like, you know, until then, I'd only taught people who were 
18, 19, 20, 21, 22, you know, in, in that age range. Um, and now I was teaching people who are older than me, my age or older than me. And that was a very different and interesting experience, you know, adult education uh, and seeing that. So that was really important. Um, but more than that, it was for these people, this was an immersion experience. It wasn't really billed as, you know, as, as an, uh, an immersion school for them, but it was. I mean, where, you know, it, as, as the head teacher for English at a provincial high school in Vietnam, she might, you know, speak a fair amount of English in a given day, but she wasn't using it all day, every day, immersed in it. So for them, it was sort of an experience to come and be totally immersed in, um, in an English environment. Um, and so this is a place I sort of put together what some threads or things that I'd written about on that forum, how to learn a language, about an ideal environment, an ideal place for learning foreign languages, an ideal, an ideal institute. Um, and uh, I, I um, sort of started to think about that a bit more. You know, what, what was this place offering? What was, you know, what was good about this? What was strong about this? And I started to really think about sort of starting to approach your question, if somebody could give me a magic wand when I had, you know, some, given some planning and thought to it, what would an ideal locale be like? What would an ideal situation be for, uh, for learning and immersion? So I got kind of interested in uh, other immersion institutes. Um, and uh, I, at that point, I actually looked around and just started thinking about them and, and you know, wondering, you know, what, what kind of infrastructure places like this had. I mean, this, this place was nice, but it was basically a large top, couple of top stories of, 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 a, of a luxury hotel. And in a, in, a, in, a, in a perpetually humid and hot country. And it just didn't, you know, seem like that, that would be the ideal place that I would want to, to plop down and stay forever. Um, so I started looking at other um, places that I initially, eventually ended up visiting. And I heard about this wonderful place called Regina Coily in the Netherlands. And I went there and visited a couple of years later. And also about the place uh, where I ended up briefly here in Minnesota, Concordia Language Villages. So I uh, really started exploring then and looking around for, um, or uh, various places where it might be ideal to set up and, and, and you know, and really teach, teach languages. But um, I would say that at that stage, uh, it was still um, kind of a dream in the sense of, yeah, it'd be nice to do that someday, but I didn't think I could actually do it. I didn't really imagine that it was possible. Uh, I should say that uh, back in California, um, somebody, very kind man, um, um, Harold Goodman, who was the author of the Michelle Thomas uh, Mandarin Chinese uh, tape series. I mean, he, he was really very kind to me at that point. And he told me back in California, you know, you could, you, you don't need to go to Singapore. You don't need to do your own set. You could, you could go like a virtual online thing and people would, you know, come to you. And I just, I didn't even not believe that. I just couldn't conceive of it. It just didn't seem, you know, like, a, a, a possibility. Um, but um, yeah, in Singapore, I started having some of these thoughts, um, but uh, I'll tell why uh, I chose to move on uh, to Dubai, but uh, you always want to ask a question or say something. I still see it's not a big a question mark, but you've got you've got a, you've got a, at least a, a, a forming question mark. There's something else you want to ask about Singapore before I move on to Dubai. Oh, let's go ahead to Dubai. Yeah. Okay. All right. So um, yeah, so Singapore, like I said, it was it was fine for um, for what it was. Uh, it was a very good experience, and I'm 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 glad I was there. But um, 
I just never thought that this was a place that I wanted to to stay forever. And so I'd already started been planning. And again, to give, I think, like a, a three-year contract there. And I just thought I'd like to go back and go back where? Well, again, Lebanon was Arabic interrupted. And even in even in, in Singapore, perversely enough, I think I did more study of Arabic than I did uh, in in uh, in of other languages, anything related to that, and almost more than I did in Lebanon. It was just by myself, and I had all the the books that I'd gotten for reading and stuff, and I just did incredible amounts. I, I can look at my my journals, then my scriptorium journals are like all Arabic from that point. So I really wanted to go back to um, an Arabic speaking country and environment. Um, and like I said, both my wife and I really, really, really loved um, Lebanon, but we just didn't feel safe to go back there after that. And it's just sort of looking around for a university in Arabic speaking a country or environment that would be safe. Um, and uh, that's how I landed in Dubai. That's, it seemed to meet those criteria that it was relatively safe. You know, if you take your family there and you can live a safe life. And um, I went back to, after a, like a three-year institute of, okay, this is interesting being a language specialist, teacher, trainer, doing these kind of things, adult education, uh, kind of uh, was happy to find a sort of what was me a much more normal university professor type position at uh, American University and, and, and uh, their American University Emirates in Dubai. So um, moved on to that uh, after my sort of stint in, uh, in Singapore was, was over. Um, and in Dubai, uh, what can I say there? That was just institutionally, um, that was another, one of the nicest things about having my own academy is uh, somehow you get late once in, when you're at a professional academic, you get, once you have some sort of uh, administrative experience that just haunts you. They want to give you more and more and more and more of it. Uh, and at the university in Dubai too, that just really turned into a nightmare. I was, you know, I, I didn't go there with any intention of things, but I was made director of the language institute, director of this, and I had to go to all these committees and all these meetings. And that was, that was a quite, um, quite time consuming and, and an interesting experience in, in, in a sense, you know, interacting with people from all over the world. It was a very international university, but um, it's not, not what I really wanted to go there to do. Um, but I realized that there, I mean, basically, um, I I went there again to go back to Arabic and, you know, with all my visions of what this is, you know, but I kind of got there and I realized that they looked at me and they said, well, here's here's a guy with, you know, a good degree from a good university with a lot of academic experience. We can plug him into this. Furthermore, we need a history teacher and he's got a degree in the comparative history of religions and historical linguistics. So they just focus on the history thing. And I got tasked with teaching world history and Middle East history and a couple of other things, but it was basically teaching the same thing, you know, each semester to, you know, different groups of kids and, uh, and you know, learning a lot about medieval history, um, I'm sorry, um, Middle Eastern history, modern Middle Eastern history at the same time that I was there. It was good for, for all of that, but it was um, very much just sort of the experience, my final sort of experience with the academia there is, yes, just they only want a part of you. I can't give the whole of me. I can't give everything. The idea of developing any kind of like courses like the kinds that I was able to do at New College in California, I mean, that was just not not even there. Even, even French, German, and Spanish, which I got put on the curriculum and developed an entire thing for that. It just the red tape of getting those started just never, never uh, came to pass. So um, it was, um, 
it was a job. It was a, you know, it was a decent, uh, decent position. I had some really, really good students. I had some really good colleagues. The university, you can complain about any, any place for a while, obviously stayed there for six or seven years. It was not, you know, terrible, um, but it was, it was limiting in terms of like, in ter if, if I had vision for wanted, what I wanted to do with an academy, what I wanted to do with anything, um, that's just not something that would happen. But um, I guess we stayed there because, uh, my wife liked it and my kids were growing older now and um, they, it became home for them. I mean, I don't know if they knew that at that time, but you know, that, you know, once when we came here, they really, really missed Dubai. They talked about it for a long time. It was, it was home for them and they, uh, they, they felt comfortable growing up there. So, um, and I uh, was able to, you know, in, in that position, I was able to, um, Despite the, the limitations on the teaching, now you're in the path of the polyglot course here, I was able to develop things like the Typorium, I was able to develop other things. Um, now that I look back at it, uh, I was able to I realize now, you know, I was able to go through all these um, other review courses for Sanskrit. I had a huge Sanskrit review course, course in there. Um, I made contact with, or she made contact with me, Professor Dina Nikulicheva, who's a professor at uh, University of, of Moscow. And she's, I think, more than anybody else putting, um, sort of trying to make polyglottery uh, a, a, a research field and, uh, you know, something that's, that's worthy of, of study and endeavor. And she became somehow uh, interested in, in me and what I was doing. And she asked me to um, do, uh, to let her see me uh, studying. And so, I spent, you know, I just I, I put up a video camera and every morning I would get up and, and I would study and I would just like study for a couple of hours and I'd, you know, send these to her. And I, I can't imagine, to me, I, just, I can't imagine anything more boring than watching somebody study, but she, you know, really enjoyed that, wrote papers about it and stuff like that. And so uh, at a certain point, I, um, I, I kind of studied Hebrew for her because I wanted to do something new and different that was kind of related to Arabic, that I was looking for that. So I, I studied some Hebrew intensively for a while. Um, but the, the reason, raison d'etre for my being there was to really, again, immerse myself in, in Arabic again, um, and was able to do that once more to that qualified degree, even more qualified than in, in Lebanon. It's, just, it's not really spoken on the street. In Lebanon, you hear Arabic and, and, and French and English mixed spoken on the street, in Dubai, you're not on the street all that much because it's too hot. <laughs> and when you're on the street, you're probably going to hear Urdu more than, than, than other languages. Um, so uh, again, I had uh, some colleagues at the university more than anybody else, Professor Fa'ar Ude, who was the professor of, of Arabic language. And he was just thrilled to have me, you know, there. And he helped me so much. You know, we would just sit and talk about Arabic literature. We'd read books. Uh, I made a couple of YouTube videos with, with him, you know, we're just reading and discussing Arabic literature. So, you know, I was able to develop my reading and spoken Arabic to, to quite a high degree, thanks to him, uh, thanks to the overall situation, thanks to just working hard at it. But um, I was also able to realize, I mean, even if I, even as I say that, and again, we can refer people to those videos, I'm sitting there talking about Arabic literature with a professor of Arabic that looks like I'm, I'm totally fluent, I'm able to have a meaningful conversation, but gosh, it's so different from having a conversation, say, in French or in German. It's so, you know, it is so much harder. It is so much more of an alien uh, world uh, that I would love to be able to 
be better in it and, and get, get the script and work on other things. But it, it really um, was a, a sort of an eye-opening, nicely humbling experience to realize no matter how much you immerse yourself in how you do this, in, in a regard like this, you're never really going to be at the, you know, the, the truly comfortable, fluid level of it, unless you were to like stay here forever and do this and only this. But yeah, I came away from there um, in, in, uh, in, in Sanskrit now. I'm trying to get you all to start off by looking at only at the Devanagari script. Because my own experience with, I guess, with Sanskrit, with Korean, with Arabic is that when I learn these, you're flooded with these Romanized scripts. And once your eyes get used to that, somehow you never really comfortably digest the reading of the native script. It's, it's, it's so much harder. So Arabic, I, I've got all these Arabic books here behind me on the wall. I can read it. Um, but if I just throw open a book of Arabic and just look at that, I think it's beautiful. I love the script. But it just, it looks like a wall of squiggles. It doesn't, you know, the words don't come jumping out at me from the written form. Um, but paradoxically, I have found the, the way that I'm able to sort of continue to use my Arabic now is one thing wonderful about Arabic is there's, there's this really rich tradition of telling tales, telling stories that ultimately, I guess, come from Sanskrit. They come from the Panchatantra and the Hittipadesha, and they go into Kalila Wadimna, and then they come into all sorts of Arabic folk tradition. So I have these uh, various sources or sites where I can hear um, these long narratives told about, you know, this barber who had five sons and, you know, the youngest son wanted to do here and, and you know, they went here and then he could talk to the emperor and just, I mean, that, you get the, the atmosphere there. I can listen to those and I can shadow those and I can like say those and I can, I, that to me is more than the written word, unfortunately, which is what I love so much. That just does come so to me. In that sense, I can listen to this kind of Arabic tale and just truly immerse my, I can just like enjoy sitting there and listening to that kind of tale. So um, I did take that out of there. I took a lot of um, materials and, and books and other things from, from uh, Dubai. Uh, so it was uh, more than anything else. It was the occasion to, again, to put myself back into Arabic. So if I take the two years that I had in Lebanon and the seven years that I had in Dubai, that's nine years uh, that I spent in, in sort of immersed in Arabic. And that's exactly parallel to my, my nine years in, in Korea. So I spent uh, 18 years of my life uh, in, in other countries, other cultures, trying to learn other languages that are like on that scale of being very, very hard languages and, and came away being able to do quite advanced level things and that also very cognizant of the fact that that they are different enough that it's going to be, you know, the, 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 it's, it's, it's never going to be the same ball game as, as, as a familiar European language. Yes, that's fascinating. And I think we're in, we've now come full circle. We began the first episode with the beginning of your academy and how that came to mm -hmm. be. And, then, and now we've, we're up to that point, it seems. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, all right. So, um, we're going to move on then. Uh, all right. So, basically, um, I didn't have any specific plans either to stay in Dubai forever or to or to to leave in a particular point. But um, in February of 2018, uh, my younger brother, whom I mentioned before, had had a catastrophic brain disease 40 years before. Um, he passed away. And my parents called me and said that my brother had died and could I please come for the funeral and whatnot. And it took me like 
as soon as I got their call, I said, yes, of course. And like to, but to, to like to make the arrangements and to be, you know, with the, the, the time thing to get the flights and stuff there. Um, it took me, I forget, like three or four days, you know, to literally to, from, from getting the call to being, getting off the airport in San Francisco um, with, with all that. And then just seeing how sad they were and how old they were and how, you know, they were and just sort of reflecting that you know on, on mortality and realizing that you know one of them would probably pass away at, at some point in the future and i get another call like that and i didn't want to take four days to to get there and be with there so um just sort of having that feeling and uh talking that over with um my with my wife we also went and spent that summer and spent the summer with them in uh, in california and then like really talking it over with young young um, just felt like we needed to be somehow closer to them, you know, in, the, in that eventuality. Uh, and furthermore, um, the the boys, Artashir in particular, were getting ready to um, apply to college. Uh, and so that seemed like um, they could go to college in, in, in Europe or other places too. But, you know, this is the logical place. It would just be easier for them to do that. So kind of for, for family reasons, um, just decided that it was time to move back to the States. Um, and so um, before I do that, because I realized I didn't mention a little backtrack, uh, I, I already mentioned that I'd been homeschooling my kids uh, in, in Dubai. Uh, that's when we got there, I just like I said, I wanted to do that. And we did that. And they've you know, been very successful uh, at teaching themselves. So we use a particular program, the Ron Paul curriculum. Um, Ron Paul is a libertarian politician. He, you know, he's also, it wasn't really him. It was Professor Gary North, who under his aegis set up this very well-designed program for disciplined young people to teach themselves so really well. And so uh, my sons, particularly Ardashir, the older one, did did very well on, on that program. Uh, he was sort of completed high school on his own when he was 16 years old rather than 18. So it was, again, getting ready to go uh, in, into college. <clears throat> and that, that curriculum uh, is very strong in, I would say, you know, the buzzword critical thinking, analysis, writing, and stuff like that. Um, but... Uh, one part of being a, a teacher of uh, 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 my role as, as the home, uh, the, the homeschooler was sort of the, the oversight, the overseer, you know, they're supposed to be taken care of, but there were other things that they, they couldn't teach them that didn't have very well in the school. So I was able to uh, be very actively involved in my son's language education. That was the, the role that I took on. So maybe I mentioned this or maybe I didn't, but um, in Lebanon, uh, which is really a Francophone country, Artishir, the older boy, um, started going to a, a Francophone uh, nursery school. And so he was speaking French there, and I'd always wanted to speak languages with my sons, and, and they just had that there. And so I'll just keep speaking French at home and home. Went to the libraries there and checked out French-speaking books. And then when Avaldemar was born, um, we just, and I spent time with the boys of just we always spoke to him. So truly, you know, he's just, Valdemar has just always grown up with French speaking, spoken what, you know, the three of us were together. So when my wife was around, we would speak English or I, I would try to speak Korean with her sometimes too. Or, but uh, it's just always a, the rule that um, I always spoke French with my sons and always read French books to them. Um, and so they had that. And then in the when I started homeschooling them, I started teaching them Latin and French, uh, and then we did some uh, Spanish at a certain point, a fair amount of Spanish. And uh, when we went, we we went to Russia on vacation for spent a summer in in, in 
from St. Petersburg. They got interested in, in Russian, and so we did a little bit of Russian, and so um, was able to really be involved in um, in their in their learning of languages from the time that they were quite young. So, um, where was I? So, deciding that it was time to come back to the United States, so that I could be closer to my family, as they're my parents are really aging now and alone, uh, and um, and my sons could be able to do this. And referring back to the um, experience that I'd had of of looking for, um, you know, what would the ideal environment be for learning, immersing yourself in foreign languages, and you know, where where could I build my institute? Where could I have like you know, the infrastructure to have it be really nice? Uh, I mentioned in Singapore, I found about this this really great institute in Belgium or Holland called Eugenia Coyle, and about this place in the uh, Minnesota called Concordia Language Villages. And uh, Concordia Language Villages uh, was a place where I kind of thought to myself way back when, you know, if I could ever get a job there as like a director there, then I wouldn't have to reinvent the wheel. I mean, the, they seem like they've got enough of the infrastructure there that I could build kind of programs that I want. Um, and uh, that would be a really great thing. And so, again, if there's a, 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 the hand of a deity watching out over me or something like this, or if there's fate or fortune or something, at exactly the time I decided that it's time for me to leave Dubai and go back to the States, lo and behold, the directorship of, of uh, about half the languages there uh, opened up. And uh, I applied for it and I got it. And the, the, they have a funny structure there. There was like the, there was an executive director. Um, she was, you know, I, I was there, I was totally open about, you know, about who I was, what I wanted to do, how I wanted to do it. And they were really open to having somebody come and, and experiment and do so. You have to work with their existing programs, run their existing programs, get those. But if we can innovate and do new things and have um, things happen there, that would be, be really great. And so, uh, for example, um, we were thinking of uh, having the the, the Polyglot Conference that, that Richard Simcott runs and, run, runs and organizes. I'm very open to having that here, planning that here. He came and visited us here and we looked around and we thought about how it would be um, if we could have it be at these villages and, you know, and have all these things, um, you know, be this, all these things would seem like a really good opportunity to have many things happen. I should say the place is, um, it's called Concordia Language Villages because it's, um, around a big lake here in Minnesota. It's the land of 10,000 lakes. So there's, there's one of these 10,000 lakes is called Turtle River Lake. Uh, and it's a giant lake. And around this lake, they own all the land. There are seven, maybe eight now, they're building more villages uh, that are culturally and architecturally authentic. So uh, you could kidnap somebody and take off the blindfold and leave them in the middle of Walze. And they would think that they were in small, some small town in, in Germany or Austria. Uh, and so they have a, a French village, and then, the, and then there's a trail to the woods, and a German village, and then there's a trail to the woods, and you come to the Norwegian village, and then another trail to the woods, and it's a Finnish slash Swedish village, and then another trail to the woods, ultimately you come to a Spanish village. Over here, they're building a Korean village. There's the grounds laid for a Japanese village, and then across the lake on the other side, there's a Russian village. Um, <clears throat> and so each of these are just like really 
you know, they're designed to look like the, the places that they are. And so that was my sort of fantasy that might have been possible to have been realized. Uh, again, for the like Lagat conference that people could spend a day if we could, you know, take over the whole village, you know, somebody could walk through and polyglot could walk, speak French in the French village, speak German in the German village, Norwegian over here and swim the lake and spin Russian and stuff like that. So um, it, it, it had uh, potential, it had opportunities, um, but uh, it was also um, first and foremost, and I don't know if I missaw this or misheard this or didn't want to know this or realize, it truly is first and foremost, it's a kid's summer camp. Uh, that's the, you know, that's where most of the things, they have adult programs, they're very few and small and far between, or specialized for the military and stuff like that. They were willing and open to build more ones, but they didn't really have that. Uh, and uh, in terms of other things, um, the, 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 I mentioned the administrative quagmire that I already ran into to a slight degree. You know, it, it was it started building in Korea. Okay, it was worse in Lebanon. Okay, um, it was thankfully avoided in, in New College, and it was a different game in Singapore. But it got worse in Dubai, and then I heaped it on myself. It was an it was an administrative, you know, nonstop meeting and stuff like that. It was a real. Uh, I thought it was a dream job, it was a nightmare job. It was in, in that sense, it was, you know, just, oh my God, nonstop uh, meetings and, and, and things like that. Um, and so ultimately uh, what happened though, the, the reason it didn't pan out, the reason things are, and the reason I'm doing the academy is because of, you know, all the COVID lockdowns, you know, when they said, you can't operate, you can't function, you all have to stay in your homes. Well, what did we do? What could we do at that point as the organization? There was people were kind of, the kids were planning to come there for a summer. So we had to pivot, you know? So I guess we were locked down in March of 2020. So, you know, it's gonna start in June or July of 2020. We have like three or four months to either shut down and go out of business like New College did for a couple of years before or develop some sort of virtual alternative. Uh, and that is something that um, I should have mentioned uh, at the university in Dubai. Uh, one one thing about that place, I mean, just like all Dubai, everything is perfectly brand new and as modern and as up to date as you could imagine. And so the president of that university, he had had this idea that we ought to develop and deliver some sort of hybrid courses. And he'd really tried to strong arm us into doing that. And um, thankfully, even the professors in the IT department, everybody hated it and resisted it. It just didn't have the, the 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 ability to do that i guess that maybe 2016 2017 it just didn't feel like the infrastructure was able to build and develop and deliver quality um zoom type interactive type type, type courses um but then there in, in 2020 it was it was do or die so we had to do that we had to develop some um some alternative for this kid's summer camp um and then I wasn't the only one, but it was largely my brainchild because I was interested in the, the adult educational component. I thought, you know, well, why don't we um, develop, you know, something that the, for the parents, for the families? Let's do some surveys and find out what the parents would like and we do this. And I think it's not surprising that, you know, parents who are going to send their kids to a language summer camp probably have more exposure to languages themselves than your, your average people. So among that pool, we were able to find enough people who like wanted to have things that were the genesis of like the, the German reading and discussion circles that I'm offering now here at, at, at you know, in my academy. Um, so uh, I was able to 
you know, to develop those, uh, that model, you know, of offering that and specifically there, that was my sort of my, my test child. I was in charge at Concordia. I was in charge of German, Swedish, uh, Danish, Norwegian, Finnish, um, and Italian, and then later on French. Uh, but at the time when we were developing this, it was only German that was directly under me. So I could only do it with German. I couldn't do it with French or Spanish or they didn't have Latin. I would have stepped on somebody else's toes if I'd done those languages. So German is the only language that I sort of like had under my control that I could offer like a reading thing. And so I developed um, models for both a conversational course and more importantly to me, a reading and discussion course in, in German literature. And I was kind of Again, it was the do or die mode of, of developing something under under the you know the, the COVID lockdown restriction type things, uh, and uh, I don't know if I was optimistic about it or whatnot, but I turned around. I was like, "This works. This works really well. This this form of it's totally different from what I experienced in Dubai a couple of years before that." So this this actually works. This this is something that you know I could you know, conceive now of, of, of doing this. I could remember Harold Goodman's words from now going on 12 years before that, you know, I could maybe open a virtual academy or something like this. Um, and so that germ got planted. When I saw that the German literature circle, reading and discussion circle was working perfectly well, and that I was able to um, interact with, again, these were people from all over the country that, um, I'd always conceived of my academy as being truly a brick and mortar type place. I just couldn't think of it in any other terms. Uh, but then when I saw this amazing virtue of being able to say, well, even, even if I'm in, in, in a giant city like New York or, or London or someplace, you're still going to be limited to the people who can physically come to the, the place. Whereas this now, I've got people from all over the country, if all over the world. You know, there's, that's, that's something enormous that, to, to be said for it. Uh, and so it was really the experience of needing to develop some sort of um, type offerings in the summer of 2020 that led me to develop a reading in German discussion circle for Germans sort of outside my, you know, real area of, of administrative oversight of, 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 of the, the camp there that made me realize, hey, this is something that I can, I can do. And I started thinking about that more and more. And I started realizing um, if I don't do this now, I, I never will. Uh, and so I decided to do it. And here we are. Yes. And we talked in the last episode all about the Academy and its bewildering array of offerings. So many languages offered at different levels. Of course, the emphasis is, as your interest is, on literature, reading and discussing literature as a vehicle for engaging with the languages as well as comparative religion, great books, courses, and so on. It's quite a span. It really is a place where you can bring all of your diverse but interconnected interests to play. That, that's, again, just for me personally, that, that is the, the greatest part. I mean, one of the greatest joys is meeting people like you. You know, I've got, you know, I've, we've got symphony, comp symphony conductors. We've got, you know, retired doctors. We have, you know, computer software people. We've got lawyers. We've got, we've got practicing emergency room doctors. We've got such a wide variety of, of people. So many, what I would expect, graduate students in medieval literature. Of course, we've got those. But then all of these others, you know, we've got so many different types of people. It really is a pleasure just helping them. And again, 
the expectation, well, I'm here to learn. I want to keep learning. I'm not interested in, a, uh, in, in a getting a grade for this right now. I'm not trying to, you know, get a specific degree. I'm interested in, in learning and expanding. So being able to meet and interact with people like you is, is um, one of the, the, the greatest experts of it. And they go hand in hand. The other side is, yes, because I'm able to interact with, you know, just I am able to give everything that I can in every other place that I have been in, I've been sort of narrowly slotted, you know, in, in it was just for administrative stuff because I knew lots of languages. I felt I could administrate lots of languages in Dubai. They saw that history on my thing and they gave me a history teacher in Singapore. It was purely linguistics and uh, in, in Lebanon, it was, you know, okay, develop the great book program and other things. If you can do it, okay. You know, whatnot. And in Korea, it was, yeah, you're here to teach French, Spanish, and German in like the classroom environment. You're the French. And then we'll give you these other roles and other things, you know, teach things. So um, there was no way that I could have done any medieval literature in any of those places. There was no way that I could have done any, you know, comparative history of religions. Whereas here, I'm able to give everything, uh, every, there's, there's not an aspect of me that I, you know, we had this um, discussion once at, at, at a polyglot conference in, in Iceland. <clears throat> there were a number of other university professors there, and we all kind of like, Put our heads together. We kind of have to hide the fact that we're polyglots. It doesn't help us in our academic careers. It's you know something that you actually kind of have to keep a little bit quiet and hush hush. Um, so this is the first place. My own academy is the, is the first and only place that I feel like yes, I can give everything of me, everything that you know. I don't I don't need to hide anything. I don't need to hold anything back. I don't need to say I, I can only do this and not that. Um, so yes, I mean. I'm very happy to have you and Sean are great in, in Latin. Same thing with Sanskrit and, and Old Norse. I mean, we've got a number of courses where people are learning well, ideally to learn to read and discuss. And then I have the, the ones where we're already doing that, the circles where we're already reading and discussing in French, German, Spanish, Latin, things like that. You mentioned there uh, that polyglots, uh, you have to hide your itis, your polyglotitis, as you've called it elsewhere, from your colleagues a little bit. And I'm curious about that. You've already hinted at one problem you, or, or one thing you don't like about the Academy's trend, which is this uh, theory orientation, orientation towards theory and learning to deconstruct through theoretical lenses. I'm wondering if you might comment a little bit further about, about the sorts of themes I'm aiming at here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, you did something that too. I mean, when you first asked, I did a little double take because again, now we're using the word the academy, meaning my academy, our academy, and also the academy meaning academia in general. So oh yes, I, I meant there. I meant the academia. Sorry, yes. Right. Now I mean now I mean the uh, academic uh, right, right. academia. Academia. Maybe yes. we should say academia rather. Academia. Than yeah, academia or the modern university institution, um, which is again but the greatest thing about having my academy now. Um, our academy, as I do feel like this really is a educational revolution. Uh, I feel like the, if I, if I may, uh, I think that the university, they've been around since the, you know, the, in various forms and other cultures and other times. But if you look at, you know, sort of the, the European American educational institution, you know, they started growing up in the high middle ages uh, and, you know, up to the high, from the high middle ages to 
to the beginning of the 19th century and 20th century, I mean, they were pretty specialized. It wasn't everybody who went there. It was only, you know, it was a, you know, it was a very small group of, of people who went. And then in the past century, they've just exploded. And now everybody goes to university and there's lots of good points about that, but also it, it's changed the nature of it. And so I think you have a lot of people that feel they need to be highly specialized and that's just become the name of the game. And as I understand it, it you know, in, in the hard sciences, it has to be that way. I mean, there's been truly advances in, in hard sciences, so it doesn't make any sense to be a generalist in, you know, science anymore, even, you know, in physics, you have to specialize in astrophysics or particle physics or something like this, because it's, it's pretty complex and you need to uh, be there. But I kind of feel like <clears throat> people in the humanities have always had a uh, an inferiority complex vis-a-vis -vis the, the hard sciences and they look at that and they sort of feel that they need to model themselves on the same thing and so um, there's this sensation in even in the in the in, in the humanities somehow you need to be highly specialized and I've never understood the degree that that can go until it just smacks me in the face you know we we had uh, one time I met a, uh, a professor when, when I was Back when I was in Korea, I mentioned that you know I was um, you know, I went there to teach French, Spanish, and German, and I, I got those programs started. And uh, and after I did that, you know, I was I, I was interested to do other things. They wanted me to do other things, and every so often they would force me to do other things. That you know, it's like I realized one time, it's like you know this, you know, we've got an English poetry course on the thing, and there's not really nobody to teach it. Do you think you could teach? And I'm like, no, I don't really know poetry. I'm like, but yes, but we don't have anybody else. Do you think you could do it? And I realized they're telling me I have to teach it, and so. I thought that I didn't like poetry. I didn't want to do it, but I accepted it. And then I realized that I didn't like poetry because I didn't take the time to read poetry aloud. And I read poetry aloud as I was preferring and realized I love poetry. And so it was a great experience to be, you know, you know, sort of, and then I think about it, you know, asking somebody like me to teach English poetry, that's not pushing my, what do you say, pushing my horizons, you know, pushing me out of my comfort zone, really. But it, you know, we had other people there. We had some woman, she was hired and she was, you know, I would look at her and I'd say she's she's got a degree in English literature, so she should be able to teach pretty much anything in English literature. No, she. What was it? It's just like had the one conversation. It was it, it was she could only teach British female novelists of the nineteen twenties. So an American female novelist of the 1920s would be out of her comfort zone, you know? A female novelist of the 19-teens or 1930s would be out of her comfort zone. Male novelist? A poet? Shakespeare? <laughs> I mean, it, it, was, it was very, very, very specifically limited to, you know, what, what they felt they could do. And I just feel that that's sort of been encouraged and, uh, and, and pushed and it's just sort of pervades the... The, the modern East. So this is one hand, you have hyper-specialization. And I think one way you can defend hyper-specialization is that you really have to, you know, it's, there's a competitive edge to academia. You have to sort of stake out a, a territory or a turf. So it's like, okay, now I've got my area here. So now what do I do? Now I need to have it be, you know, it's uh, some to, to defend myself as, as an academic. It has to have a lot of jargon that non-academics can't understand. And it has to have a theory that, you know, has some sort of, you know, um, Marxist feminist edge to it. So it's got to go into this kind of thing. And so there I have everything defined in these terms. And so people put on these classes with these lenses that they come and they read the thing. And, and I don't know, they sort of, these are the people that predominate in, in, uh, in the institution these days. And it's um, an un, 
never-ending juggernaut. So uh, that is the uh, very, very palpable relief to me to have my own academy, just to be away from that, um, not to have to, to have to interact with that kind of thing, which I do think do, really does dominate the, the current academic scene, uh, institutional university organized scene. And I do think that that's getting to be a, a straw that's going to break a camel's back and, you know, combined with the, the, at least here in the States, that the incredible cost of university education, um, the uh, the, the sort of the, 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 val the lack of value that you get from them. It's just this pressure, you must go to university, you must get a degree, you're going to go there, you're going to get very hyper-specialized courses with a certain political or an agenda. It's going to have nothing related to your, 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 your career prospects. And you're going to come out you know, with this incredible burdensome debt of student loan. I just think that that's, you know, the system is, is cracking uh, right now. Uh, and because it's dominated that way, there's not really much of room for the sort of, I think that the, the ideal way, I'll take up your wand now, the ideal way to develop adult education from that long tradition, 800 years of university tradition is to say, well, let's, you know, realize that now precisely because we know so much more about other cultures and other places, there's so much more to know. Let's realize that the, um, the idea of compacting uh, a person's education to their youth and saying, okay, you can, you can learn and you can get expanded, you can study, you can expand your mind until you're about 22, 23, you know, maybe 25, 30 if we're pushing it, but you know, it's got to come to a stop. And then you're going to be focused on one thing and need to do other things to realize that uh, precisely because we have so much more knowledge and awareness and, and, and information out there, uh, that it should be uh, an ongoing lifelong process like Mortimer Adler's great books collection. It's something you're supposed to read and reread throughout your entire life and read several times and come to with deeper insight and understanding uh, with with each subsequent rereading. Re uh, and so, yeah, that's, uh, I do feel if the academy, my academy, can be uh, a real educational revolution to take the if the, if the university, it's the organization institution of academia has become so bloated in, in that direction um, that we can take the pure learning part of it and realize that there are other ways of delivering it. If, if a professor is not saddled with burdensome uh, administrative duties and, you know, and these other things and is able to give entirely of himself and the students are able to be there to say, this is what we want to learn with continuous ongoing learning. Um, and now we have a way of, of engaging with each other from across the world, across the globe, uh, and, uh, and, and participating in that. Then I think that there are, yeah, there's, that's just so much, you know, helping you learn Sanskrit and Latin and, and discuss comparative history of religions uh, is, uh, I think, much more valuable than writing a highly specialized journal article and publishing it in, you know, something that where where nobody's ever going to read it. Um, and so, um, yeah, just the the way that this is developing is is pretty nice and exciting for me for all for all these different reasons. You've taken up the magic wand. Now I'll ask you to take up a crystal ball. What <laughs> do you think is the future for universities in in say the states? Um, I don't know. I mean, the Ivy League, my, my sons are now at Columbia where I was. It's been there since 1754. I know that's not old for you, but that's pretty old for us. And it's certainly not going away. 
but it is, yeah, it is changing very much uh, in, in, in its core and its nature. They're keeping the core curriculum of the great books, reading and discussion program. So, in, you know, in some ways it's the same. Uh, when I drop my sons off there and I, I go through the, I walk into the library and, you know, I can go back to, to my memories of it. You know, they're, they're getting some things of it. So I think that the, the Ivy League schools or something, they'll stay there at least in the, the outward form. But in terms of um, all these other universities that have proliferated and, you know, and are, are so, so many of them, uh, again, I just, I don't know if they can, that, that they'll all survive. And, you know, when people realize, you know, gosh, this is, it's costing so much to get this education. And, you know, why does that have to be the case? A hundred years ago, you did not need a, a bachelor's degree to do most jobs. And now the only reason you need a bachelor's degree to do most jobs is because they expect you to have a bachelor's degree to do them. But it doesn't, it doesn't really tie to them. So I guess I could be modestly optimistically hopeful that maybe the, the you know, the, the bloated system would implode and the places that have been around since 1754 or so and have a, a, a deeper core and, you know, a big library and, you know, an endowment or stuff that they, you know, they would weather this and they could go back to being more of what they used to be. But uh, I don't know that my crystal ball is at all, uh, is at all, all valid. That's fascinating stuff. And I'm looking at the time and I think we're approaching perhaps the end of the of the natural life of this installment. And we haven't really touched on the meditative aspects of language learning. Perhaps it was too ambitious of me to hope to cover all the very interesting things we covered today, as well as the mm. meditative aspect. Maybe we ought to make this a triptych. I don't know how you feel about that. <laughs> and we start straight away on the meditative aspect in language learning. For example, you have said, to quote you, the key to learning a new language is unhooking the inner stream of uh, language from mother language and hooking it into the new language. And you've also said more than discipline or concentration tasks or meditation or pranayama or prayer, I, this is a quote from you, have found the procedure of thinking in a foreign language to be superior to all the others in switching off the monkey mind and thus controlling the mind. So I'm very curious about that. And I know you have very specific techniques more into that. So I'd like to discuss that. I know also you have lucid dreaming techniques, uh, techniques mm -hmm. of using the dream state uh, in, 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 its, in, its various, in its various types to add an extra 30 to perhaps even 30 minutes to perhaps even two hours of uh, language immersion. That's fascinating also. You have certain mm -hmm. sacred writing practice, and I say sacred meaning the attitude with which one approaches it, uh, a meditative writing copying of uh, meaningful text and so on as a, as a means of language learning. You really have techniques which go beyond, it seems, simply acquiring grammar and vocabulary and, and, and take a deeper, a deeper look at these things. So I'd love to discuss those with you in detail. Perhaps that would benefit its own episode. Yeah, we've been on for 95 minutes. So, so um, yeah, if you want to talk about these things, and I'm happy to, as, as long as there's added interest out there people listening to this want to hear about uh, my uh, again uh, you picked up on the techniques that i'm not surprised are, are most interesting to you but uh, the, the various techniques and approaches that i have to learning languages certainly i'd be very happy to discuss that with you splendid well professor alexandra Aguayas, thank you very much okay thank you
Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.